please take your Bible and join me in Ephesians chapter 1. Today we begin reading in verse 15. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 1, 15. Before I do a wedding, I usually get the opportunity to do premarital counseling. And many of the couples in our church have heard me tell this story as I've done their premarital counseling. It's a story that is forever etched upon my mind. I'm going to change the name of the guy. This seems to be the day we're changing names of people. But uh, just in case this uh, friend of mine sees this story, he'll at least know that I didn't use his real name. When I was in seminary, I served a church in South Dallas and commuted to Fort Worth. I was the youth minister at a little church there. Dear people who I love dearly, still to this day. And I carpooled with three other guys. Two of those three guys had church jobs, and uh, one of them did not. The one who did not had a wife, and they had no children, and she was a polio victim, the wife. I'm going to call the, the man's name Joe. That's, his na- that's not his name, but I'll call him Joe. So Joe had a wife. She was a polio victim. This was 1982. She drove a Honda Accord. That was a great car. Well, still is a pretty good car. I don't mean to sit in judgment over anybody who drives a Honda Accord, but I'm telling you, 1982, if you had a Honda Accord and you were in seminary, you were, you were George Jefferson. You were moving on up. Uh, it was good. And the reason that she had a good car is because she uh, lived in South Dallas but worked downtown Dallas. She was the executive assistant for the CEO of the largest media company in North Texas. They owned uh, a big newspaper that I'll leave unnamed. They owned a big ABC TV station that I'll leave unnamed. And she was the executive assistant to the CEO. She was in the penthouse. She had a big job. My friend Joe didn't have a job. The rest of us did. We were all struggling, so forth. Uh, But Joe would come home every day, and he would watch reruns of Andy Griffith. His wife had polio. She's driving to Dallas in the snow and the ice. And he's coming home and watching Andy Griffith. So he's telling us, you know, we're talking about what we're doing in the car, 30 miles over to Fort Worth every day. And he tells us every day about what's going on between Andy and Barney. It's not to judge Andy and Barney, but it is to say that if your wife has a polio victim and you're not working, I'm trying not to judge you. I'm trying not to think that maybe you ought to go get a job. He ought to do something. He wasn't doing anything. And he made it clear he wasn't doing anything. So he told us that story, and I don't know, an interval passed two or three weeks. And we recircled back to that story, and he said, uh, hey, I want to tell you an update. My wife came home last night, 5.30, 6 o'clock, whatever time it was, and she came in the house, and I had folded the laundry. And she started crying. Really, why did she start crying? Because she had begun to feel bad about the fact that I was not helping out at all around the house. And rather than mention it to me, she began to pray for me. So she'd been praying for me for two weeks that I would begin to take some responsibility. And specifically, she mentioned the laundry. She didn't tell me that, but she prayed and I did the laundry. And she connected that together and began to cry. Well, here it is now, more than 40 years since, and that story has never left me. 
I, I tell that in the context of premarital counseling because I ask these young wives who are prone to think that their husband suffers from a lack of information, what is your preferred strategy for changing the behavior of your husband? And the answer is nag. To which every husband in here will tell you that nagging is counterproductive. Every wife in here, by the way, would make the same statement. But we don't make decisions on behavior for the most part because we don't lack, because we do lack information. The reason we're not doing what we're not doing is because we don't want to do it. Because we don't do it. And so how do you actually move people into better behavior, right behavior, good behavior, preferred behavior? How do you help people make better choices? How do you change people on the inside? If we knew the answer to that, we could all write a book and people would buy it and we'd be rich and the rest would be history. But I want to suggest to you that we have today in our Ephesians paragraph that we're going to read a reminder that we are not alone in trying to seek the best spiritual good for the people whom we love the most. So I don't know what your application might be today of this paragraph, but it might be your family. It might be your husband or wife. It might be your children or grandchildren. It might be your siblings, brothers or sisters. It might be your parents. It might be your neighbor. It might be your co-worker. It might be your pastor. <laughs> he could use somebody praying for him. I want you to notice in this passage that the apostle is going to talk about his prayer for the Ephesians. And I want you to note what he prays for and why he prays that way. Because this has application for our lives as we think about how to build our own lives. So let's read together beginning in verse 15, Ephesians 1. For this reason, and this points back to the preceding paragraph where he's talked about becoming a Christian. Because they are Christians. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there are so many phrases there that we could camp out on, spend a lot of time, but I've chosen rather to focus on essentially the power of prayer this morning. I want you to note from the outset of this paragraph, the apostle says, I pray for you. I pray for you. And there are two aspects of his prayers that I want to focus on this morning. I hope will be helpful to us. I want you to know, first of all, that he prays for the foundation of their spiritual life. I'm not sure what the application for that needs to be in your particular world. 
But I would suspect to you that there are many people in this room who are burdened for the lack of spiritual vitality in someone else. Could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a grandchild, could, could be a co-worker, could be a parent, could be any number of people that you could name. But I suspect there are many in this room who are praying for the lack of spiritual life or spiritual vitality in the life of someone else. But I want you to note, he points out how he prays for the Ephesians. Verse 15, for this reason, because you are born again, because you are converted, you'll note back in verse 13, he he describes it this way, you heard the word of truth, you believed in him, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those three verbs, heard, believed, sealed, all comprise a response to the gospel. They are born again. So for this reason, because I've heard of your faith, In the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks. I want to suggest to you that we ought to be busy about praying for other people's spiritual foundations. Faith and love, those are the two modifiers, if you will, that he uses, the points that he makes here in verse 15. Faith and love. Faith in Jesus and love toward all the saints. If I were to ask you what's the greatest commandment, you'd say love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's another way of saying the exact same thing. Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I would ask you this morning, are you praying for the spiritual foundation of those in your orbit who are Christian people, who claim to be Christian, who profess to be Christian? The Apostle Paul prays for the Christian strength of Christian people. He does not ignore the fact that everybody's life is under attack. He he is not ignorant of the fact that we live in a spiritual war zone and that the weapon of choice in that spiritual war zone has to be prayer. It is a fact that Christians everywhere believe in prayer. And it is a fact that Christians everywhere don't pray as much as they claim to believe to pray. We are prayer weaklings far too often. And we get what we get because we do what we do. We don't pray and we don't get We want our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers. We want our church to be more vibrant for Christ, more dedicated to Christ, more on fire for Christ, more aware of Christ, more, more devoted to Christ. And yet we don't do anything except sit around and commiserate how bad they are, how poor they are, how weak they are. When we ought to be praying... It's precisely what he says. Because I know of your faith, I don't quit praying. Because you're under attack. He celebrates their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Now, that that resonates with me for reasons that I just can't help but explain. 
Your love for all the saints. Why, why is that important to the Ephesian church? We would all agree that love, Christian love, is important. But it, it's particularly important to this church because we know the rest of the story. The book of Ephesians probably written somewhere in the 7th in the decade of the first century, 60, 62, 64, different opinions on when it was written. The book of Revelation, written some 30 years later, about 95 or so A.D. So, 30-year gap between Ephesians and Revelation. For those of you who've forgotten, the book of Revelation uh, begins with a reminder that the apostle is carried to heaven. He sees this earthly, this great heavenly vision that, about these earthly uh, churches, and the, the Lord God, through Jesus, talks to him and speaks to him and gives him a message for seven churches, and they are, those messages are contained in Revelation 2 and 3. The first of those seven churches mentioned is Ephesus, this church. Thirty years later, you remember what he says to the church at Ephesus, I'll read it, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And here he begins to read the resume of the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary." Now, if somebody said that about you, if, the, if you stood before God and God said, I know that you are a dedicated servant. I know that you follow what is right. You know what is right. You do what is right. You, you continually emphasize what is right. And you hold people's feet to the fire about right doctrine. If you heard that from God, you would say, way to go. I feel good. I like my chances. God's happy with me. But you would ignore the next verse. Because Revelation 2, 4 says, but in spite of the fact that you're orthodox, in spite of the fact that you're doctrinally sound, in spite of the fact that you don't put up with shenanigans with the Bible, the Word of God, in spite of the fact that you're committed to the truth, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or the King James says you left your first love. In other words, it turns out that if you don't love people, then God is not pleased with you. He goes on to say there in Revelation 2, and if you don't repent of leaving your first love, I'm coming and I'm going to remove your lampstand. You're no longer going to be a church. You're going out of business because you've forgotten my business. You say, well, we ought to be right, and we ought to be committed to the truth. And I would say, amen, brother, we ought to be, and we will be, and we are. 
But we will not do that at the expense of failing to love people. The reason we do it is because in His mercy, He loved us. In His mercy, He looked at us with all of our warts and all of our troubles and all of our rebellions, and He loved us. And God told me through His Word, He told you through His Word, that having received mercy, you are to be the dispenser of mercy. You're to be the channel through which His mercy marches on. You don't give mercy, God won't give you mercy. You want more mercy? You want your ultimate mercy? Then act like you know why you're here, which is to give mercy. Somehow it's difficult for us, but yet he prays that way in verse 15. I have heard of your faith, and I have heard of your love, and your love is critically important. We're all familiar since we're on a pre-marriage illustration here with the love chapter, so-called, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. Very familiar words. We forget them quickly. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels... But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I even deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. To which I would simply ask, what part of nothing do we not understand? We don't have to choose between faith and love. In fact, we can't. We must have faith in the Lord Jesus, and we must have love for all the saints. We must. We must, because this is the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And the apostle prays that people will not forget that. You want to pray for your church? Here's how you pray. Pray that we not forget to believe right and to love right. Because if we get off balance in any way, we're going to fail and we're going to invite the judgment of God upon our church. You want to change the behavior of your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your spouse, your coworkers, your classmates? You want to change their behavior? Then pray. Pray for them. Pray for their faith. Pray for their love. Pray. The Apostle Paul thought the Ephesians needed it. Turns out they did. I suspect we're no different. We should pray. We should pray for the foundation stones of spiritual life and the people around us. There's not a person in this room who doesn't need somebody praying. Maybe a lot of somebody's praying for their spiritual vitality. It's time for us to come alive and to pray for one another. To pray for one another. Not to throw rocks, lob grenades, judge people, harm people, banish people, but to love people, to love people, love all the saints. This is a book about the church and the glory of the church. And he's going to say in the third chapter, we're not there yet, but he's going to say the ultimate glory of God is how he brings people together who are not the same. In this case, Jew and Gentile, and he puts them together. Now the rest of the world looks at that and they said, you're a Jew, what are you doing hanging out with that dude? 
or you're a Gentile, why in the world are you fellowshipping with that guy who historically, his people, have been very judgmental to our people, so-called, and why are you hanging out together? And the answer is the gospel. Jesus has brought me together. And what matters here is that his blood is red, his culture's different, his language may be different, his expectations about a dozen things may be different than mine, but in the end, he is a sinner in need of grace. I am a sinner in need of grace, and we have experienced a common grace in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, and we're going to heaven together. And when we gather together, we'll be celebrating together there. Let's get started now. Let's praise God together, even though we are not the same. We need to pray for one another instead of judge one another. The foundation of your spiritual life is your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of all the saints. And Paul says, I never fail to pray that you not forget that. We would do well to repeat that. But he doesn't stop there with his praying. He goes beyond that, and he also prays for the progress of their spiritual lives. The progress, not just the foundation, but the progress. You'll note how he phrases it here in verse 17. There, again, any number of these phrases we could talk about for hours. That the Lord God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Spirit of wisdom. Now, in, in the Greek world, wisdom means, uh, it, it means more and more knowledge, more and more insight into knowledge. It, it means more brain power, more thinking. You're wise because you, you understand these wise things, these hard things, these things that may have require more brain cells. You're wise. In the Greek world, that's the way it was. But in the Jewish world, wisdom had nothing to do with more knowledge necessarily. It had to do with applied knowledge. Something like this. It's raining. I think I'm going to go inside. In the Jewish mind, that's wisdom. If it's raining, you go inside. You don't stand out in the rain. Because that's not wisdom. Because wisdom for the Jews is a behavioral thing. So he asked here in verse 17 that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him. So there it is, wisdom and knowledge, that God would give you both. He would give you more understanding of him and more understanding of what he means in your life, how that translates into the way you live. How should you be praying for people in your life? That they would know God and that they would apply God, that they would live for God, that they would, they would act as if they actually know God, that they've been changed by this encounter with God. In the knowledge of God, they have the wisdom of Him, the spirit of wisdom. So he, he prays for that. He goes on for, from there in verse 18 and says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, we all know that's a metaphor, right? The heart has no eyes. The heart is an organ that pumps blood. It's not really the seat of emotions. But for the purposes of our conversation and the purposes of literary uh, device, the heart is the seat of the emotions. I love you with all of my organ pumping in my chest. doesn't have quite the same ring, right? We know that the seat of the emotions is not 
really in the heart, but for the purposes of this, he asked for the eyes of their heart to be enlightened. The problem is we have blind hearts. We have ill-equipped hearts. We have ill-formed hearts. We, we have blind hearts. We don't see. Now, you remember that, that Jesus came to awaken those who are blind. Several miracles in the Gospels have to do with people who are blind, and then Jesus would teach, I am the light of the world. I'm not only the physical light of that man's organs, but I am the spiritual light for that man's heart, and I am for you as well. So he would take that physical experience and extrapolate in a spiritual truth and teach on that. Did with it with the bread of life. I'm the bread of life after he takes the loaves and fishes, and I am the bread of life. Don't look for the bread that doesn't ultimately satisfy, but look for the bread of life and so forth. Jesus uses that kind of teaching again and again and again. And so here he prays that the eyes of their heart would be opened, enlightened. My, my favorite illustration of that is in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, you, you will know this story. Uh, and if you don't, you should know it. Uh, verse 8 just take a minute to, to read a couple of paragraphs. This is Elisha, and Elisha is a thorn in the side of the king of Syria. So here we go. Once, verse 8, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, which is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you don't go past this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So you get the picture here? The king of Syria would gather his cabinet. He would say, We're going to go down to X, and we're going to set up camp. Elisha knew what he said. He wasn't there, but he knew what he said. So he would consult with the king of Israel, saying, don't go to X, because the king of Syria is going to be there. Well, the king of Syria figures out that he's got somebody who's ratting his plans out. And he takes issue with that. So here's the next paragraph. So the mind, verse 11, of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? We've got a mole and I need to know who it is. And one of his servants says, none, my Lord, we're, we're all clean. We're all good. O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That's a miracle. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. I need to capture that guy. So it was told him, behold, he, Elisha, is in Dothan. Susan and I used to live near Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and they surrounded the city. So Elisha's in Dothan. And the king of Syria sets up siege outside the city of Dothan. 
Verse 15, so when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, the next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, he looks outside, and he says, uh-oh, something happened in the middle of the night. There's an army with horses and chariots all around the city. The servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, not a problem. Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, and here is a phrase that you need to pray. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Have you got a loved one who's spiritually blind? Have you got a loved one that's walking around in the spiritual darkness? Have you got a friend who needs to make some progress? Well, the number one strategy is you need to pray for them. And I don't mean a little. I mean a lot. Don't miss the end of the story, 2 Kings 6. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. There's another good prayer. You got somebody who's an enemy of God, an adversary of God, who's doing harm to the people of God. Pray that God would strike them with blindness. So he struck with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, which is where the king of Israel is. <laughs> Returning to Ephesians. His prayer in verse 18 is that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? There are three what statements in verse 18 and verse 19. What is the hope? What are the riches? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? The balance of the book of Ephesians is going to be a great testimony about the power of God. He's going to end up in chapter 6 talking about the fact that we don't war against flesh and blood. We war against principalities and powers in places that you don't even know exist. There are hidden chariots right now that are working on behalf of God and behalf of God's people in Central Asia, in North America, and in places that we can't pronounce. The the chariots of fire are working for God. God is working in the heavens and God is working on earth. And you need real power to get that done. So his prayer in Ephesians 1 is, God, my prayer is that you'll give them eyes that can see the hope, that can see the riches of this inheritance and can calculate the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us. We are not the weaklings the world believes us to be. We are not inept. We are not impotent. We are not simply running around taking placebos of religious pills. We're not doing this. Instead, we're on the front lines of doing the bidding of Almighty God. And one day, one day, he concludes this paragraph with this. 
He will give Christ the place he rightly deserves, far above all authority, all rule, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He will put all things under his feet. Think of that. You are serving the King of Kings. You are in the army of the King of Kings. And you are appealing in your prayers to the King of Kings. How should you pray? You should pray as Paul prays for the Ephesians. I'm grateful for your faith and your love. And I'm praying that you get a double dose of it, a triple dose of it, a quadruple dose of it, that you get more and more of it. In fact, that you go beyond any of that and you go and obtain and receive an enlightened heart that has spiritual eyes that can see what is actually going on. I can tell you that I lived in Dothan, Alabama. I never did once see a chariot of fire. Never once. there and everywhere I've been since for a day for a week for a month for a year and everywhere you've been since our God is there he was there before you he was there with you and he's going to be there after you. Because every last person, every last situation, every last circumstance is subject to him. There's only one king of all this. And he doesn't wear pants. He doesn't wear a crown. He doesn't hold a scepter. He doesn't command an army. No, there's only one king. And the sooner we understand that we're in the army of the eternal king and that we're serving him in this battle, the stronger we'll be, the stronger the church will be, the stronger our personal lives will be, the more joy, the more hope, the more vibrancy that we'll demonstrate to our families, to our friends. People will say, there's something different about you. What is that? I don't know. I've been with Jesus. Maybe that's it. I believe in Jesus. Maybe that's it. I, I lean upon Jesus. Maybe that's it. I'm confident in the work of God through Jesus in my life. Maybe that's it. Well, of course that's it. Because he's the king. He's the only king. He's the real king. And the rest of these wannabes are not the king. Let's quit acting like somehow our agenda is earthly. Our agenda is eternal. We want to go to see the king. And we want to take as many people with us as we can get. We want to announce and announce and declare and declare and pray and pray that all of these blind people who do not now see will see. 
And these people who are ignorant of the glories of majesty for which God has given us eyes to see will not remain in their ignorant blindness. That God will open their eyes. I can't fix that. I can't solve that. I can't go into their hearts and turn a screw and somehow change that. Neither can you. But I can pray. And I can be faithful to my own faith and my own love for all the brethren. They all matter, people. They all matter. Every last one of them, they matter. And the sooner we get on the program, the better for the glory of God. Let us be found faithful in living for God ourselves and praying for those around us that they would live for God as well. Let us stop talking about it and start doing it to the glory of God. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you that as we look to you here, we look to you with thanksgiving. You've done marvelous things. You are doing marvelous things. You've given us faith, and you've given us eyes to see. You've given us understanding. You've given us wisdom. You've given us power. And you intend for us to live, Father, powerful lives. Not be earthbound, but rather be bold, looking to Christ, hoping in Christ, trusting in Christ. Give us grace this morning. Build your church. Build it through your people. Thank you for the faith and love that's represented in this room. I pray that you would grow it. You would strengthen it. You would give us eyes to see, hearts to believe, and you give us many more people willing to do the same. To the praise of your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.